so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast featuring Sharif Gurgis and the topic of marriage. Marriage laws all by themselves, just the laws or just the cases or just the policy papers, they don't add up to anything unless they facilitate real goods. A child being able to toddle towards his attentive father who's on the scene. A young girl being able to be absorbed by her hobbies or her novels and not grief over her parents' divorce. A, a family bickering boisterously over dinner. A young man being unscarred by authority, unafraid of commitment, kneeling in prayer or in marriage But the point is that all of those real flesh and blood goods depend enormously on the health of the marriage culture. The first ERLC conference in 2014, titled The Gospel, Homosexuality, and the Future of Marriage, was well-received and exceeded expectations. Part of this is because we are living in a world that is confused about these topics. Sharif Gergis helped shed some light on how to think about marriage in his talk, Better Together, Marriage and the Common Good. We hope you enjoy this message. In some ways, I'm surprised to be up here and to have had the work that I've had over the last few years. I'm a small guy. I don't see the inside of a gym that much. And I'm very conflict-averse. I hate conflict. And yet, for the last four or five years, I've been pushing the most hated conservative position on the most heated social issue at the most socially liberal law schools in the country. And the message that I have from that foreign country to share is a very simple one. It's that despite the cultural trends and the social trends, as far as the arguments go, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. My co-authors and I wrote a book not to rehash the rich theological and scriptural case for marriage, but to make a rational case, a philosophical case, really to draw on a tradition that goes back to thinkers who had no connection to Judaism or Christianity and came up with remarkably similar views on sex and marriage. To take those arguments to the opposition and to see what they had in response. And we realized that our suspicions were right, that the debate has gone on without a real argument. It's been name-calling on one side and silence on the other. And it makes a big difference in that context to know a little bit about the substance of that rational argument, a little bit about the style that works best for those non-Christian audiences, to get a sense of how we can start to push back, how we can start to make our case even beyond our own congregations in a way that I think will also strengthen our own congregations 
on it. And confidence is one of the biggest determinants of how that conversation goes. I was, um, I learned this early on. It was my first year of law school. I had just gone to my first debate and I had to miss a class for it. So I came back and one of my classmates said, you know, we noticed you were gone on Thursday. What were you up to? And I thought, am I going to come out of the closet on this? I said, okay, let's do it. I said, uh, just cheerfully, calmly. I said, oh, I was at a debate. She said, on what? I said, on marriage. She said, what aspect of marriage? I said, uh, whether we should recognize same-sex relationships as marriages. And then she kind of chuckled, and she said, like, in this, this is the obligatory question, but we all know the answer. What side were you on? We're at Yale Law School, remember? And she said, and I said, I was against. There was this long silence. She paused and she paused, and then her face lit up with understanding. She said, was it one of those debates where you go and they assign you a position? <laughs> and I thought, no. But from there, her tone shifted, and it immediately became one of deep and genuine interest and curiosity. Here was this guy in the middle of the belly of the beast, proudly opposing its reigning ideology. What was he going to say? And that's been my experience everywhere. My co-authors and I usually go to law schools to debate professors in contexts where in 90 minutes of Q&A, we will not get a single friendly question. And a week beforehand, inevitably, the very nervous two or three conservatives at these law schools will send us an email and say, I'm so sorry I've invited you. This is going to go awful. They'll say, they've got, they've got a Facebook page. They, they being people opposed to the argument. They've got a Facebook page. They've been planning for weeks on the listservs. They're going to moon you. They're going to glitter bomb you. They're going to. And every time I say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I walk up onto the stage and I begin like this. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm here to challenge everything you think you know about sex and marriage. You guys think it's superstition or at best a kind of minimally respectable faith against reason and science and enlightenment. I'm here to flip that equation for you, to tell you that your own view has deep contradictions you've never thought of, that the other view has a rational case you've never heard, and in Q&A, I want you to prove me wrong. And, <laughs> and everything changes. You can usually tell who's against you, not because of how they look, but because of what they're wearing, sometimes the clothes of the opposite sex, or because of posters they have, or even because of this sort of posture they have. It's a kind of sideways slink like this. And they've got a smirk, and they're waiting to just tear you apart. And after that beginning, it all changes. And everyone in the room wants to hear what you have to say. And the responses afterward from the pe three people in the room who agreed with us were always, that was such a relief. And from the others, it was, I think you're wrong, but I respect your argument. And from some of them, it's, I think you're wrong, but I have no idea where you go wrong. Let me get back to you. So what is that argument? What is the core of the case? Well, I think it begins by pointing out that there is no argument on the other side. What does that look like? Well, the central question in the debate is not equality. Everybody is for marriage equality. We want to recognize everything that's a marriage and not things that aren't marriages. The whole question is what marriage is. And that is a question that no one on the other side has given a serious answer to. So we can do their work for them. What is it that makes marriage different on their view? It's got to be a deep emotional connection. Marriage is no more and no less than your number one 
emotional bond. It's emotional union. That's what makes it different from other forms of companionship. And the short argument against that is that no one could possibly believe it. It cannot explain in a principled way any of the other features of marriage that people on both sides of the debate still think it has. Why should marriage, if it's mainly distinguished by emotional union, be pledged to permanence? Why do you have to have a permanent commitment to get off the ground if it's distinguished by a kind of emotion that comes and goes and that can go for good? Why should it require sexual exclusivity? Yeah, for most of us, by temperament or taste, having a sexually exclusive relationship makes the relationship's emotional quality more intense. But a lot of people say it's the opposite for them. Some people in my own, among my own colleagues in philosophy will say, no, we have a sexually open relationship, and that makes our emotional bond closer. If what really makes it a marriage is that emotional bond, there is nothing to say to them about how they got marriage wrong. The idea that marriage is inherently a union of two people. There's no reason of principle that two, that three men can't have an emotional bond just as intense, just as deep. New York Magazine had a very sympathetic profile of what's called a thruple, which is a three-person couple. <laughs> you with me? And these thruples say, you know, you can find online, I get this stuff in my inbox all the time, unfortunately, stories of three men living together who say, we have a deep emotional bond. We have pledged to bear all the burdens and benefits of common life together. We don't want to be stigmatized. We don't want kids we raise to be stigmatized. We want to file our taxes jointly beyond each other's inheritance and on the deed together for the house. Every single art. You say, oh, you could just settle for two. They would say, no, there are qualitative emotional differences between two-person and three-person bonds, and your being stuck to the number two is just a matter of irrational prejudice, a hang-up from Judaism or Christianity. Every single argument can be made. Most rank-and-file folks who support same-sex marriage don't want to buy that argument. Their own vision of marriage is what leads them astray. Even the idea that marriage has to be a sexual relationship starts to look a little bit arbitrary on this view. If what really makes it different is a matter of degree, then there's no reason or principle that people in a platonic bond can't have the intensity that makes it a marriage. So permanence, exclusivity, monogamy, sexual union, a connection of family life, through that to the common good, every single thing that most on both sides of the debate think makes a marriage different collapses on this view. Not just that, it becomes unjust, discrimination, arbitrary to say that marriage still has to have those features. Some people, 300 LGBT and allied scholars and activists have already admitted this. They signed a statement several years ago saying, yeah, justice requires gay marriage. It also requires legally recognizing multiple partner, multiple household, deliberately temporary, sexually open, non-sexual union, because love and commitment are what make a marriage. And who are we to say what type of love or what shape of commitment? So the principle of marriage on the other side, emotional union, can't make sense of anything that makes marriage different from companionship. You might at this point say, okay, I'm with you so far, but what's the alternative vision besides the one we know in the scriptures? And what I want to say to you is that's an excellent vision. It's one we have every right to bring to the public square. It's one no one should shame us into keeping out of the public square, but it's supplemented beautifully by a philosophical vision that goes back to Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Xenophanes, Masonius, Rufus, Plutarch, folks who never had 
a letter to their hometown from St. Paul, who never saw a Bible, and who came to remarkably similar ideas. In our book, My Co-Authors and I and What is Marriage, we describe this as the view that marriage is a comprehensive union. In every dimension that makes a form of community at all, the community of marriage is comprehensive. What does that mean? Well, any kind of community, whether it's intellectual at a university or a sports community, like a team, is formed by cooperation, by common action towards common ends in the context of a commitment. And it's in those three respects that the community of marriage is comprehensive. First, in the common action that makes it a marriage, in the dimensions of the partners united. Most people understand marriage unites you at all levels with the beloved, heart, mind, and body. And what makes for bodily union? Well, most people would say it's something about sexual activity. But if all sex did for marriage was foster feelings of closeness, it wouldn't really add anything that you couldn't get in other ways. There's something special about sex that makes two people one flesh. But that thing is only possible between a man and a woman. Why? Well, because what makes the parts of a single person one flesh, one body, is that all my parts, my heart and lungs and so on, are all working together towards a single bodily end of the whole, my biological life. That's why a biologist will tell you, yeah, that's one organism. And in that radical sense, two people can be one body, one flesh, actively coordinated towards a single bodily end of the whole that they make up. But that only happens between a man and a woman in marriage. The couple is the whole, and the bodily end that's bigger than but encompasses them both is their reproduction. So only a man and a woman can form a truly comprehensive union, a real bodily union included. It's comprehensive in the range of goods that unite them. It's not just oriented to intellectual goods, knowledge and truth and understanding like a university or to athletic goods like a sports team. But we all get that marriage is kind of all of those things. It's intellectual and it's recreational and it calls for the whole wide sharing of family life. And most people will also say with you that that has something to do with the fact that it's oriented not just to this or that good, truth or athletic excellence, but to whole new human beings, new subjects, new participants in every good. But what explains that? Only the traditional or what we call the conjugal view can. On the conjugal view, the very act that seals marital love is also the kind of act that makes new life. So marriage itself, by its nature, even before you know about Genesis, you can see from that fact that it's oriented to and fulfilled by family life. And if it's comprehensive in those two senses, in the range of the dimensions of the partners united and the goods around which they're united, it calls for comprehensive commitment. Through time, comprehensive commitment, total commitment means permanence. And at each time, it means exclusivity. So permanence, exclusivity, monogamy, sexual union, connection to family life, through that to the common good. Every single thing that the revisionist view can't explain that it would tear asunder, this view unifies. And it's something, it's a vision, a comprehensive union that shows up in those Greek philosophers and beautifully complements the rich tradition, the inspired wisdom of Genesis on one flesh union. 
Well, at this point, you might be with me so far. You might say, okay, I see how the first view can't explain anything that makes a marriage. And the second view can. It, it, it tidies it all up. It unifies. It explains in one idea how all these features go together. But so what? Why should this be something that my congregation cares about? Isn't it just an abstract moral ideal? And the fact is that history and sociology over the last 50 years and over the long haul tell us that that is false. Yeah, it's true that marriage laws all by themselves, just the laws or just the cases or just the policy papers, they don't add up to anything unless they facilitate real goods. A child being able to toddle towards his attentive father who's on the scene. A young girl being able to be absorbed by her hobbies or her novels and not grief over her parents' divorce. A, a family bickering boisterously over dinner. A young man being unscarred by authority, unafraid of commitment, kneeling in prayer or in marriage proposal. But the point is that all of those real flesh and blood goods depend enormously on the health of the marriage culture. And how is that connected to the definition of marriage? Well, you just have to imagine, say, a young man who grows up from day one in a society where law and culture and his schools and his every organ of civil society tells him what makes a marriage is deep emotional union. It's inauthentic to stick with the marriage when that emotional buzz goes away. And moms and dads are fully replaceable. In fact, it's bigotry to think otherwise. He grows up from day one hearing those lessons, internalizing them. Is he going to be more or less likely to stick with a marriage when the going gets tough? To stay with his wife for the sake of the kids? To push through the dryness that any relationship will know? You just have to ask the question to answer it. And if you weren't sure of the answer, we would already know based on data from no-fault divorce. That was supposed to be a win-win for everybody. In the 70s and 80s when it was being pressed, the idea was, how would this affect you or your marriage? It's only to help high-conflict marriages break up. Why should you change what you do? Wake up one day and decide to divorce your wife just because of what the Smiths down the street have been able to do because of this new law. Well, we know 20 years later that was a falsehood. Maybe from some people it was a lie. We know that it didn't just make that easier for high-conflict marriages. It made people more likely to keep their eyes on the exit ramp which made them more likely to take it. It eroded the norm of permanence across the board to some extent. Here we would be doubling down on the emotional union view of marriage that got its start with no-fault divorce and indeed before that. And there I'm not just telling you uh, something about no-fault divorce, but really about all the different spoils of the sexual revolution. They're all connected. They all make a difference. And we know that whether a kid is reared by her own mother and father in a stable bond is the best indicator of whether she'll grow up to know poverty. It's the best indicator of a lot of things, educational outcomes, psychological, drug abuse, rates of graduation from high school, onset of uh, early pregnancy out of wedlock child rearing, jail rates, especially for young boys. Every aspect of the common good depends on a strong marriage culture. This is Matthew 25 stuff. It is a matter of social justice. That's why your congregation should care about it. That's why we can't give this up or think that it's just a matter for the church. We owe it to the least of these 
to make sure that wherever possible, our culture gives them the best shot at being reared by the love of the man and woman who gave them life. That's the reason this stuff matters. You might say, okay, even if I bought all that, we're losing so far. What can I do about it? Well, I think one thing, one place for these kinds of arguments is in a long-term campaign. A lot of people think the arguments don't matter if they don't convince people on the spot. Well, I've been doing philosophy stuff at Princeton and Oxford and elsewhere for years, and I'll tell you, no philosophical argument convinces someone overnight. But it still has a role to play. There's still a reason that Paul talks about the law written on our hearts. There's still a reason that in Acts 17, he himself goes in the marketplace to reason with whom? The philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And that role is one that we can understand even from our Lord's parables about the gospel itself. It's a matter of sowing seeds, which takes time. You can plant seeds of doubt about their assumptions. You can plant, you can clear the brush, you can clean the soil of weeds, of objections that really don't even understand the view that's at stake, and so on. You should think of it, I think, in terms of what should I say to this person in front of me now so that they come around in a year. You wouldn't try to force them on the spot. You wouldn't try to embarrass them. You certainly wouldn't use zingers. You'd be building a long-term relationship. You'd be trying to develop trust. You'd be trying to tell them why they should care about these issues in the first place, and you would try to build with them a friendship. That's the context in which all of these issues get much easier. It's a context in which people, rather than being inclined not to trust you, are most inclined to trust you, most inclined to hear what you have to say, where they're naturally motivated to care what my friend says, even if they weren't, to begin with, motivated by the issue itself. And one thing that building friendship requires is unconditional love, meaning that they know and you know and they know that you know that your friendship doesn't depend on their being convinced. It just depends on something that's unchanging about them, which is that they're made in God's image. So if that's the picture of how philosophy can help us and how it helps us from its own resources, not just as some kind of thinly veiled theology, what difference does the spiritual aspect make? We are, after all, all Christians here. Well, I think it obviously gives you additional resources for the arguments, but it also changes some other aspects that partly explain why it's mostly Christians who are left defending this view today. I think one thing that gives you is a kind of motivation that you can't have as what I'll call a noble pagan. It's a kind of lone ranger. It's very easy, especially when the culture is going against you, to think, you know what? This isn't worth it. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that you're pushing for a cause that's bigger than yourself. But as Christians, we can look back on 2,000 years of geniuses and saints. We can see ourselves as in a long line of heroes by God's grace, not human strength. And from that perspective, if you go back and you read a uh, Augustine, if you read your Dante, if you look at the great works of our civilization that embodied this vision of marriage, that celebrated the sex differences, that saw all of this as good and worthy, it becomes much easier to find resources in a very human level to continue the fight when the culture at any given moment isn't going your way. I think those examples also give us a great witness of what the freedom of the sons of God look like, looks like even on issues 
where the culture is going against them. Here I think of the play turned into a movie of A Man for All Seasons. I know it's kind of awkward for a Catholic to give you Thomas More's witness on marriage at a Protestant conference, but work with me for a second and think about, if you've seen that play, if you've seen that movie, or if you haven't, go see it. Forget about the denominational differences for a moment. Look at how witty, how joyful, how debonair one can be when one is convinced that one's cause is bigger than oneself, when one knows that one is fighting for a higher ideal, and that the final word on that ideal is not in this life. That's the kind of joy that changes hearts even before people's minds begin to turn. The other thing that the gospel vision gives you is the sense, as I begun to say already, that even when the tide is turning against you politically and culturally, your fight, your witness, even your peaceful endurance of defeat, as somehow within the economy of the Lord, is itself something that bears fruit in character and other spiritual fruits for that longest-term common good known as the kingdom. And the other thing this gives you is a kind of perspective. Some people think they're going to win this debate by telling us we're on the wrong side of history. You might have heard the phrase. Well, we know as Christians that that just isn't true. There's only one side to care about, which is the side of the truth. We know that history isn't guided by impersonal forces in the dark that no one can do anything about, but that with God's grace, we can decide what side of history that we're on and that the Lord that we worship is the Lord of history. Even the impersonal forces, the wind and the seas, obey him. That gives you a kind of motivation that the noble pagan can't have. And it also shapes your goal. We're not just worried about the same-sex marriage debate. We're worried about marriage. And we're not just worried about marriage as an idea. We're worried about it as a cause, as a real-life thing that makes a difference to people's well-being. There is where the noble pagan might have to stop. But we know that in fighting for any aspect of the truth, however specific, we're fighting not just for an idea, we're not just recruiting for a cause, we are recruiting people, we're bringing them into a relationship. Because truth, as we know, but those philosophers I mentioned did not know, is a person. And he calls each of us into a kind of communion that we can only bring people into by God's grace and step by step. So it shapes your goal in a way that will also shape your style. Our Lord said, not I've come to convince, but I've come to set the world aflame. And that vision shapes how we will act even on these apparently merely moral issues. Well, I think there's one other thing. If you really do want to draw people into a communion, that requires being their friend. And being their friend in a genuine sense and in an unconditional sense requires knowing their motives. And I can tell you that the elite, the academic elite on this issue, often have a whole variety of motives, and some of them what we would consider pretty bad motives. Right? They think all of the traditional norms I mentioned really are oppressive, that we really do have to upend all of them. We just have to get nose under the camel's tent this far, and then we can really do the work of justice. So there, set them aside. Most rank-and-file folks on this issue aren't motivated by that. Most people in my generation don't know a thing about this theory that marriage is oppressive and so on. They just are worried about loneliness. They're worried about their gay friends, about themselves, perhaps, 
being lonely. We have to recognize that motivation, that yearning for intimacy. We have to acknowledge it and acknowledge its value. And then we have to see where it goes from there. I had a friend, a friend of mine for several years, uh, brought up in the church. And when we were 24, we'd known each other for probably 16 years at this point. He sent me an email and he said, I'm coming out and I'm embracing gay relationships. I'm going to find myself a man and I'm going to be with him and I'm going to be happy and I'm leaving the church. I was obviously pretty upset about this. He's a dear friend. I want what's best for him in every respect. I sent him an email back and I said, well, let me just ask you, what was it that changed your mind? And he said, oh, it was Dan Savage. Dan Savage had a campaign on YouTube called It Gets Better. I remember thinking, you know, okay, by the way, if you don't know what that is, it's a, it's a set of videos on YouTube where a bunch of folks from the LGBT community say, you know what, young people in my position, I had a really awful uh, childhood or adolescence, and I'm here to tell you it gets better if you just embrace this. There are lots of sexual options in your future, identities, relationships. Go with it, and things get better. I remember thinking to myself, this is a failure on the church's part. My friend had already heard the very best It Gets Better campaign. It's called The Gospel. It wasn't when some sex columnist put up a couple videos on YouTube. It was when a carpenter in first century Palestine got up and said, the kingdom is at hand. It wasn't the promise of a kind of fulfillment in sexual relationships and the ups and downs and the uncertainty. And really, at the end of the day, when you put all your emotional eggs in that basket, the disappointment. It was the promise of the kingdom, this transcendent horizon of communion in every respect with God and all the blessed. And if he didn't know that, that was a failure on the church's part. What can we do about that yearning for loneliness? I think we can do a couple things, two in particular. One is we can develop our understanding of marriage. We have bought in, to some extent, to the revisionist idea of marriage as simply your number one emotional connection. That's a vision on which anyone who's single for whatever reason, same-sex attractions or anything else, just settles for less. And that is not the biblical vision. We, don't, we shouldn't think of family life as an atom separated from everything else. Maybe you go to your friends as a pit stop to recharge, to come back to what really matters, which is the nuclear family. We should think of family as a node in a network where you can naturally integrate single people as big siblings to your kids, as vacation partners for your whole family in real and intimate ways, bring them into your life and have them live out their own vocation to love in that way. I think the other thing we do have to develop is our vocation, is our theology of friendship. We see people doing this already. Anthony Esselin, Touchstone Magazine was mentioned. Anthony Esselin has a beautiful piece there from a couple years ago called A Requiem for Friendship, where he talks about the fact that one harm of the revisionist view of marriage is it says friendships have to be shallow, otherwise they ought to be sexual. To recover the biblical vision of friendship of David and Jonathan, all the rest of a vision of marriage, as, uh, of friendship as deeply fulfilling in its own right, as having its own forms of intimacy and depth without a hint of sex. Uh, the, there's a blog, as I mentioned, called Spiritual Friendship, where a bunch of LGBT identified Christians who embrace the church's teaching say all of this, and they develop a positive vision of what their vocation might be. The last thing I'll end with, see my time is up, it's just one sentence, but it has lots of semicolons in it. We have a vision, 
We have the blessing of eschatology. That's the other thing the spiritual difference makes. We have a vision of the future, of the broader horizon, which tells us that our marriage, our one body union of marriage, ends at death because it depends on our reproductive life. But our union as one body in Christ depends on his resurrected life, so it alone will last forever. It reminds us that marriage points to the kingdom in one way. It's a union of heart, mind, and body in Christ. But celibacy is its own vocation that can point to the kingdom in another way. It's openness to everybody. It reminds us for that reason that there isn't some default vocation for those who can and contingency plans for those who can't, but unique calls to love given to us each by name from the foundation of the world on purpose. And it reminds us that our most fundamental identity is not as gay or straight or single or married or even member of this or that family or household, but son or daughter of God, made in his image, destined for his household with many mansions and for the glory of his kingdom. Thanks. We appreciate you joining us for today's episode of the ERLC podcast. If you want more information about our podcast or how to think biblically about sexuality, visit ERLC.com.